Hey, thanks for joining us at Connection Point Church. You know, we would love for you to stay connected and a simple way for you to do that is to subscribe so that each week you can get notified when new content goes live. We'd also love to keep in touch with you throughout the week and the best way to do this is through our Connection Point Facebook page. Now with all that being said, let's go to this week's message with our lead pastor, Zach Maddox. Well, I imagine you've heard about the overreach of government, the killing of innocent babies, the abuse of power by government officials, and the disappointing example of some religious leaders. Yeah? So you've heard about the environment then that Jesus entered into when he came 2,000 years ago. Facing the Roman Empire, leaders appointed by Rome, like Herod, who commissioned the killing of innocent children in Bethlehem, and a corrupt religious system led by Sadducees. You've heard of that, right? Yep. Well, the good news is the kingdom of God overcame the Roman Empire. It overcame power-hungry and prideful leaders, and it set in motion a people-of-God movement that changed the world, a movement that turned the world upside down. But I, but I will say this, it happened God's way and in God's time through people who repented and believed in the gospel and who engaged in his mission. What I'd like to talk about today as, as we continue our Better Together series is a message about Jesus and politics. And I'd like to talk about where politics fits within the kingdom of God. Now, where, oh, let me say this, and, and this is what, and the order matters, where politics fits in the kingdom of God, not where the kingdom of God fits in politics. I think sometimes we mess that up because there's a big difference. We cannot try to make the kingdom of God fit within our political agendas. We can't. However, we can sometimes use politics to advance the kingdom of God. We just have to make sure we're aligning ourselves with what God is already doing to see that happen. We as a people of God, we have a king. We live in a kingdom. We have God's word as our guide and a mission to fulfill. And the question we want to answer today is where does politics fit in that? That's what we want to answer today. In other words, how has God used politics to advance the kingdom of God in the past? That's a good question. Because that is what he is ultimately concerned about. And I would say we're obviously living in a rather interesting time politically. And I know people are wondering, where does Christianity fit into this? And I trust we're really going to find some good answers today. So if you have your Bibles, hey, I hope you do. I'm going to encourage you to turn with me to Acts chapter 1 as we uh, take a look at trying to find answers where does this all fit in the world that we're living in today? Acts chapter 1, we're going to take a, a look at verses 6 through 10. So I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, we stand because these are God's words direct to us. And so then we don't take that for granted. And, and so let's hear what Jesus has to say this morning about kingdoms. So starting in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you saw him go. Praise the Lord. These are the words of God. You may be seated this morning. So last week, we talked about Jesus in love. We discovered that for us to be Christians, we must love one another like Jesus has loved us. That's a tall order. Jesus who died for us. We who are at one time enemies of God. And yet this is the command we've been given. Love as Jesus has loved. That's a good command. And this is going to be really important as we consider our content today. Because I know that in this room, in our overflow rooms, and in our online campus, there are people who have voted or, or will vote. We have people uh, who, because of the contentious times we find ourselves in, they, they may not vote. We have liberals and conservatives, Republicans and Democrats. And I would say that's actually not just okay, it's good maybe even great, because God intends to have his people and every network and group in the world today. 
That's his intention. He wants them everywhere so that we can be salt and be light in every area of our world. I know that's what he wants. But, but let me say up front, because I was thinking about this this morning in terms of people are probably wondering, where is he going to go with Jesus in politics, right? So let me be up front. I will not be telling you who to vote for, person or party. That's not the point of this message. So here's what I need for you to do this morning. <sighs> Seriously, just breathe today, all right? It's, it's okay. Take a breath. I don't want you sitting anxiously wondering, is this guy going to endorse what I'm going after, okay? I don't want you thinking that this morning. That's not the goal. And, and I share this up front because my concern in talking about this topic this morning, it's understanding there's a lot of emotions around this topic right now. I know that. And, and what that means is, here's, here's really my concern, is, is that you kind of sit back and just let's take a look at Scripture together and have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying. Don't let anything get in the, in the way of that. I'll, I'll be happy to talk with you after the service this morning, okay? So I'm telling you from the start, I simply want to help us all better understand what politics has to do with the kingdom of God and how we can see the kingdom of God advance in our nation today. Because let me tell you, that's what we need. We need God's kingdom to advance in our nation in, in major ways today. That's what we need to see happen. But at the same time, that doesn't mean, so let me, let me also be upfront doesn't mean this message might not make you uncomfortable sometimes. It, honestly, it might, it might not. It, ju it just kind of depends on you. And I would say this, it, it sometimes depends on how much maybe we've blended our faith with the culture in which we live. And I say this as a former missionary who was always going into cultures, and how do we make sure we don't blend Jesus with culture, but just let Jesus be Jesus? It's important. So I want to be upfront with you today because I love you. I love you enough to, to speak truth as it relates to Jesus and politics. So, obviously, I'm not talking about Jesus and politics to make anyone upset. That's never my goal. I, I did have one. So, I want to share with you the kinds of leaders I get to work with. I had one, one of my uh, members of my church leadership team, which is staff and deacons. He offered this week, you know, we used to have a drum cage around the drummer. He offered to bring that back up for this morning's message. <laughs> but here's why. So, here's what's terrible. He said, because you know I'm going to pass out tomatoes on the way in. <laughs> not great. So, those are the kind of leaders I've been blessed with here. <laughs> <laughs> but here, I'd like to encourage you, please stay engaged from beginning to end. Um, that even if I cover some things which might make you uncomfortable, I believe your spirit will bear witness to where we land the plane. I really do. So stay with me this morning. And, and I'd like us to consider the fact that Jesus was continually saying very uncomfortable things to his followers. Amen. He just was. If we read scripture for all it's worth, it will challenge our mindsets and lifestyle choices. It just will. But that's a good thing because Jesus is trying to help us live a better life and better represent him to the world. So it's okay. So let's never run from the uncomfortable. That's where God does his best work. Always. He just does. And just like a parent who takes her kid to the doctor to get the medicine, and I can't say my kids like the doctor, but they know it helps them. So my heart is today that we learn how to live well in society in which we live in. And God's word can help us do that. So here in my heart this morning, I want us, really, here's what I want. I want us to break off any shackles that have kept many in the church chained to broken systems and ideologies that lead to worry and fear. If you're worried and fearful this morning, there's probably something a bit off in your life with Jesus. There probably is. And I don't want us to live that way. So my goal this morning is that we walk out of here free today, free in spirit and free in heart and mind. We should. So that's what I'm going after. But at the same time, I was thinking about this message. I, I do realize some people think I should tell people how to vote or who to vote for because our nation is in a troubling place. But here's why that's not the point of this message. Because the kingdom of God is my main priority and I know the kingdom of God is an unshakable, eternal kingdom that's not of this world. God's kingdom, it's unshakable, it's eternal, and it's not of this world. It's not. Before Jesus went to the cross, Pilate questions Jesus and asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replies, my kingdom is not of this world. We're citizens of a different kind of kingdom. Uh, Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, he instructs us, dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from the worldly desires that wage war against our very souls. We might not recognize there's things in this world today that actually wage war against our very souls. Some of the systems and things that we've got in our world, they do. And so Peter warns us, we're temporary residents and foreigners. The writer of Hebrews, he says, we are foreigners and nomads here on earth. 
We're looking forward to a country we can call our own. We're looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. God has prepared a city for us. I can't wait for that city. God's eternal kingdom is in the world, but not of this world. God has prepared a place for us, we who are temporary residents and foreigners of this world. We have a better place, a a heavenly homeland we're headed towards, and yet Jesus also came to inaugurate his kingdom on earth. So there's this tension that we live in. After the Israelites had been freed from slavery in in Egypt by God and, and wandered in the desert, so they'd been wandering for 40 years, they approached Jericho to enter the land, and Joshua encounters the commander of the Lord's army. Reading from Joshua chapter 5, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing him before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? Like, am I about to be killed here? That's what he's asking. And he said, no, but I am the commander of the Lord's army of the Lord. Now I have come. It's understood by many Bible scholars that this commander of the Lord's army is a pre-incarnate Jesus. And when Joshua asks, are you for us or for our enemies? He says, I haven't come here to take sides. I've come here to take over. That's what Jesus is saying. And this has been and always will be the plan of God. God doesn't come to take sides. He comes to take over because his rule is good and perfect. Jesus didn't come 2,000 years ago to endorse the political aspirations of a nation. He came to take over the whole world, by the way. We have a king. We live in a kingdom. And we have a mission to fulfill. As believers, it's important we put the cross above our flag. That we put our allegiance to King Jesus above patriotism. That our focus must be on the Great Commission, not on political activism. Our Savior is neither a donkey or an elephant. Our Savior is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Our real solution has never rode on Air Force One. Our real solution is coming in the clouds with great power and glory who reigns over the earth. That's who we follow. The prophet Isaiah, he tells us the government rests on his shoulders. He's a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. His government and its peace will never end. Praise God. He rules with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passage I'm quoting from Isaiah chapter 9, I love that it points out the increase of God's government, the increase of his rule, the increase of his kingdom never ends. And we can be thankful for that. Nothing can stop the kingdom of God. And it's in this we put our ultimate hope and trust. So our trust is, as we head into this week, I'd like to remind you, regardless of who's elected, God is still God. He's not shaking. God's not wondering what will happen next. The writer of Colossians tells us that Christ existed before anything else. He holds all creation together. In other words, Jesus holds this world in his hands. So could I ask you this morning, what do we have to worry about? We serve a God who is always everywhere. He is bigger and stronger and mightier than any politician or political party. No law can stop the power of God. Whoever winds up occupying the Oval Office will not have more power than the King of Kings. So if it really is in God we trust and it's in his kingdom we're meant to be most concerned. To otherwise put all our effort and energy into the securing and establishing of our own earthly kingdoms distracts us from what God really intends us to do. If we're most concerned with God establishing his kingdom, then we can look at what politics has to do with the establishment of God's eternal kingdom in the right way through the right lens. That's what I want to do today. Because there is a part that politics can play. But before we can look at where world politics fits within the kingdom of God, it's, it's important to understand how it is the king establishes his kingdom. We need to understand that this morning. And what we find from our passage, going back to what we read this morning, we find the kingdom of God is established God's way. It's established his way. After the resurrection, Jesus spends 40 days with the disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God. The disciples eventually ask, now that you've risen from the dead, will you establish your kingdom on earth? What does Jesus tell them? It's not for you to know times or seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, I want to point out, notice, Jesus doesn't say his kingdom will not be established. 
I think that's important to point out because God's kingdom has come, is coming, and will come. The kingdom of God was inaugurated with the coming of Jesus, and it's going to be consummated at his second coming. That's our blessed hope. God's rule has already begun in our world. Praise God. Jesus has already dealt Satan an ultimate blow in the great holy war at the cross and subsequent resurrection. The church, we who believe in Jesus as our king, we are now advancing on enemy territory and the enemy's gates will not be able to withstand God's ever advancing kingdom. We should be thankful for that today. And then one day, one day, Jesus will come again and he will set everything straight. He will dethrone evil rulers and consummate his kingdom. God's kingdom will be fully established on earth as it is in heaven, that which we should be praying for. Now, to help us better understand what it meant for God's kingdom to come in the, in the person of Jesus, I'd like to provide a narrative for the environment of which he entered into in the first century. I think it will help us better understand the times that we're currently living in. Now, when I say the first century, I'm talking about first hundred years AD, the, the time of Jesus. I want you to understand the time frame, so that's what I'm referring to. And I shared in the good news about the kingdom message that God had promised throughout the Old Testament to come back, to return to his people in a big way and set up his rule, his kingdom. And the Jewish people always hoped that this would simply underwrite their national aspirations. After all, he was their God, right? But the prophets up to and including John the Baptist had always warned that God's coming in power and in person would be entirely on his own terms, with his own purpose, and that his own people would be as much under judgment as anyone if their aspirations didn't coincide with God's. That was the understanding. I think this is something we need to consider as the church in America too. God's coming kingdom is entirely on his own terms, with his own purposes, in his own way, and it's vital our aspirations coincide with God's. We, like the people around us, are as much under his judgment if our aspirations don't coincide with his. You see, when Jesus came in the first century, there was far more wrong with earth than anyone had supposed, so he had to inaugurate God's rule in a way no one expected. And I wonder today if there's far more wrong with our nation, the churches in our nation, let's go there, than anyone can really guess right now. When Jesus came, there were other supposed kings or rulers trying to prescribe their own religious uh, remedies, or, or at least their, their path or their push to, to their own agendas to put the world together in the way that they thought it should be. And so what happened in the first century is the real and self-appointed leaders of the Jewish people, they were set on course that was radically different from Jesus's. There was Herod Antipas, the debauched and degenerate son of a warlord father. There was a fake aristocracy in Jerusalem, the chief priests and Sadducees, who ran the temple and were kept in power by the Romans because they were rich and successful not because they really represented or taught the true ancient traditions of Israel, the way to God, to Yahweh. There were Pharisees who were looking for an intensification of law, keeping in the hope that this will speed up the coming restoration of Israel. And of course, the corrupt and evil Roman Empire. For Jesus to become king, it would be by some kind of confrontation with these forces, or could I put before you this morning, rather the forces that stood behind them. And this is a really important principle this morning. Our fight is never against people. Let's be clear about that this morning. Our fight is never against people. Jesus' fight was not against people. It was against the spiritual forces of evil at work behind the scenes. That's what he was coming against. So, so make no mistake, Jesus came to fight a battle, a battle against the real enemies of God. It was not the battle his followers were expecting him to fight. But Jesus knew what the real problem was. Jesus' battle was with Satan, a, a battle that reached its climax at the cross. And Jesus fought and won this battle to set people free and establish God's sovereign rule and saving rule on earth, and it came through his suffering and death. He did not use military might to fight against spiritual powers. He used prayer, fasting, love, truth, and suffering. Those were the weapons of his warfare and what we'll find as we look at the history of Christian faith is this is exactly how the kingdom of God has advanced the past 2,000 years. And it all started with Jesus. When Jesus became king, something deeper than outward reformation occurred. Jesus didn't simply tighten up existing laws and regulations and, and enforce them more strictly. 
No, he came to change hearts. When Jesus became king, people's hearts finally had the ability to be transformed as they were set free from the effects of sin, death, and the devil. Jesus liberated hearts, which is where the real problems are found. What exterior laws could not do, Jesus did on the cross, causing internal change that had external ramifications. This is what it looks like when the kingdom of God advances. Hearts change. People are changed from the inside out. And that is then how societies are transformed. Nations are liberated, and the blessing of God is poured out on a people. This is why Paul writes and tells believers in Corinth, this means anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. When we accept the invitation to follow Jesus, we enter into the age of God's rule, the age to come. We're no longer trapped in this evil age, but instead we get to model the love of a Savior to a world that's still influenced by evil. And part of the implication for us this morning is noticing how God's kingdom came, how it's still coming, and how it will one day fully come. What we find in the first century is the kingdom of God did not come through military might or ballot box. Instead, it came through the enduring love of a suffering servant king and his faithful followers who endured the same. Christians in the first several hundred years, they faced incredible opposition. Many persecuted for their faith, yet they remained a faithful witness of Jesus. They took his teachings to heart, like those found in Matthew 25, where Jesus says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. And so these early believers, they, they went after these teachings. And, and Rodney Stark, in his book, The Triumph of Christianity, he talks about how Christians in the first few hundred years, how they regularly met the needs of people, believers and non-believers, because mercy was a primary virtue of the Christian faith. That a merciful God requires his followers to be merciful. It was an incredibly revolutionary idea in the Roman Empire that Christian love and charity must extend beyond the boundaries of family and even those of faith to all in need. Now, Cyprian, a, a martyred third century bishop of Carthage, here's what he said. There's nothing remarkable in cherishing merely our own people with the due attentions of love. Thus the good was done to all men, not merely to the household of faith. I love that we have these letters that show us how did early believers live. In 251, the bishop of Rome, he wrote a letter to the bishop of Antioch in which he mentioned that the Roman congregation was supporting 1,500 widows and distressed persons. Folks, that's incredible. There weren't mega churches then, and they were supporting widows and those distressed. And so Stark then summarizes, the Christians ran a miniature welfare state in an empire which for the most part lacked social services. This is how early Christians lived. Stark then contrasts this with this pagan world at a time where mercy was regarded as a character defect because mercy involved providing unearned help or relief, which was considered contrary to justice. I was reading through that and wondering how we would rank today as believers. Would we be among the early Christians providing hope for all those in need even if they didn't earn it? Or would we be more like the pagans who think it's a character defect to provide unearned help for those in need? Where would we be today? These early Christians, they, they displayed incredible mercy when plague struck the empire. In the year 165, a devastating epidemic swept through the Roman Empire. A quarter of the population wound up dying. That's a bad, bad disease. Then a century later, another great plague came. And, and once again, family, friends, and neighbors, they died. And the response for many is they flee. They would run from it or at least stay away from those that were sick. And this being the case of a, if a family member exhibited symptoms, you were actually tossed out into the street where people were dead or dying. And the pagan priests, they didn't bother to pray. They fled themselves because their gods really didn't care about human affairs. The idea of a merciful or caring God was absolutely alien to the non-Christian Roman. But then Christians, they claimed to have answers, and they showed up and took action. They cared for the sick instead of abandoning them, and in so doing, they saved enormous numbers of people, sometimes at the expense of their own life. Bishop Dionysus of Alexandria, he wrote, he wrote a letter to his members. He says, most of our brothers showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease. 
drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of presbyters, deacons, and laymen as a result of great piety and strong faith. That was the Christian response to pandemics then. And what was the result of believers living like this? What happened to the early church who simply met in homes, enjoyed food and fellowship, who met to discuss scripture and participate in prayer, who took communion every time they gathered, who took care of orphans, widows, and the diseased. They went from a movement of thousands in the year 100, labeled as a cult, burned as human torches in Emperor Nero's gardens, to by the year 300, they were a movement of more than 6 million people. That's what happened to these people. God was building his kingdom through the enduring love of his suffering saints, not through ballot boxes and military might. The early believers were citizens of heaven, and they acted as such. So early on, members of our denomination, the Assemblies of God, of which our church is a part, they affirmed loyalty to the American government while at the same time proclaimed their citizenship to be in heaven. They, they quoted Philippians 3.20 where Paul writes, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The founding men and women of the Assemblies of God were caught between the times, their time and the time of Christ's return. It's a time we're still stuck in between. And it was the kingdom of heaven identity that kept them from endorsing war efforts and for many, even to participate in voting. Many of you may not be aware the Assemblies of God had an official statement on war and peacemaking on file with the United States government from 1917 to 1967. It read, therefore, we as a body of Christians, while purposing to fulfill all the obligations of loyal citizenship, are nevertheless constrained to declare that we cannot conscientiously participate in war and armed resistance, which involves the actual destruction of human life, since this is contrary to our view of the clear teachings of the inspired word of God, which is the sole basis of our faith. That was our roots. And why am I bringing this up? Because I want us to understand our movement has always been about going back to God's word, to his original design for the church, the teachings of Jesus, Holy Spirit empowerment, and the understanding that although we live in this world, this world is not our home. That our main concern has always been the advancement of God's kingdom. And that while earthly, earthly nation states advance through military might and ballot boxes, historically the kingdom of God has moved forward through the enduring love of its suffering saints. 2,000 years of church history proves this. The kingdom of God is established his way. And the kingdom of God is established in God's time. The kingdom of God is established in his time. But pastor, you haven't told us what politics has to do with the kingdom of God. What we find is that although God doesn't have to use political systems to advance his kingdom, like the examples I've given, we know from scripture God establishes governments and rulers. Here's what we find in the New Testament book of Romans chapter 13. Everyone must submit to governing authorities for all authority comes from God. And those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So what this means is God somehow works through governing authorities. He can even work through bad ones. So let's look at what happens with the Roman Empire. With the growth of the church, it becomes increasingly difficult for Rome to legally persecute the church. So that by 311, Emperor Galerius excused Christians from praying to Roman gods and asked only that they pray to their own God for our security and that of the state. You see, before this, Christians were supposed to pray to Roman gods, something that they were unwilling to do and were persecuted for. But now, a Roman government official, the emperor, he recognized the power of God through the people of God. Folks, that's extraordinary. The Roman emperor asked God's people to pray for him and the nation. Isn't that awesome? Shouldn't that be the response of governing authorities today? Would you please pray for us? Pray for this nation because I understand that your God is God. That's what he was saying. But now this, this governor, he's, he's, he, this emperor, he's now asking them to pray. But, but I also want us to think about why was, he, why was his attitude changing? With six million people in the Roman Empire claiming allegiance to King Jesus out of 60 million, so now they're 10% of the population. I bet there were believers in every arena of the empire now. Think about that. Government leaders, business owners, teachers, philosophers, they were everywhere, influencing everything in positive and loving ways. And so by 313, here's what happened. Constantine then issues an edict of toleration, basically making Christianity legal. The edict made every religion legal, but Christianity was the driver behind the new law. So he understood because of Christianity, we just need to make religion legal now. And then what happens? Constantine becomes a Christian himself. Unheard of. A Christian emperor? 
After generations of failed attempts to stamp out the Christian faith, the emperor himself joins the faith. That's absolutely crazy. That'd be like a a wealthy secularist businessman becoming a genuine follower of Jesus. Is that really possible? I think so. With Constantine becoming a Christian, suddenly it was now okay and maybe even good to be a Christian. And this generated both positive and negative effects, but admittedly, with Constantine's conversion, now almost 50% of the population, 30 million people, are now followers of Jesus. That's a 433% increase. And you know I'm a math guy, so i got to figure that out. That's crazy! In 50 years' time. Now, it took hundreds of years to get there, but God was advancing his kingdom, and he did it both with and without political endeavors. But how else have we seen politics advance the kingdom of God? We've had Christians like William Wilberforce work in political environments to pass legislation for the betterment of others. Wilberforce, a British politician, he became an evangelical Christian in 1785, and shortly after, he began to work toward the end of the British slave trade, which was huge. 20 years later, he was successful in ending the slave trade, and by 1833, he had an act signed to end slavery throughout the British Empire. That's a Christian man. And that's amazing. The political arena has been used to advance kingdom of God values. Absolutely. In this study by Robert Woodbury, I mentioned in a previous message about Jesus and missions, where it was found that where missions has gone, humanity has flourished. And one of the reasons they found this occurred is because missionaries, they worked to end the opium trade in China. They fought to curtail abuses by landlords. In the West Indies and other colonies, they played key roles in the movement to end slavery throughout the British Empire. They worked with Wilberforce. They worked to have land returned to the native Zosa people of South Africa, and they also protected tribes in New Zealand and Australia from being wiped out by settlers. Part of sharing the gospel in word and action has historically involved Christians being involved in political endeavors as part of heaven intersecting earth, as part of the coming of the kingdom of God. And you can see some of that between the political parties and our nation. Although we've got multiple political parties, we still mostly are a two-party system, Republicans and Democrats. And when you look at what would be kingdom of God values, think about these values, scripture behind every one of them. Things like being for people, all people, from womb to tomb. Things like taking care of the least of these, the marginalized, the minority, the refugee, the immigrant, the poor, those in prison, the sick, orphans, and widows. Taking care of our environment. All of these things are in scripture, and you can see those things in differing ways between our political parties. And that's why I think people sometimes find Christians politically confusing. Because if you really hold to Scripture, God's Word as our guide, you'll find it hard to fit into our current political system. You will. You'll find yourself, here's what I have found. I have found myself too liberal for my conservative friends and too conservative for my liberal ones. Like we become equal opportunity offenders, right? But this was also, you look at the roots of our movement, the Assemblies of God, this is how they started. They ordained women ministers from the start. Their early congregations were mixed racially. Church meetings attracted drunkards, gamblers, and prostitutes. That'll liven things up. (laughs) Our movement was initially considered too liberal for other denominational likings, and our social gospel, as it was labeled, kept us out of fellowship with other evangelical circles at first. And yet, this is what we're called to do. We allow our allegiance to the kingdom of God influence our political endeavors. We don't allow our political allegiances to influence the church. There's a big difference. And I think sometimes that's where we may have gotten a little bit off track. Uh, There have been times where Christians have engaged in politics in order to advance their personal or maybe denominational agendas. Now, a good question to ask is what's caused the assemblies of God? What caused them now? So started as this movement that was, you know, citizens of heaven allegiance, but then we realized, well, maybe we should have some involvement. So they held this line. But by the 1940s, leaders within the assemblies of God thought it was necessary for evangelical Christians to have a voice in our country. So they joined a fellowship with other evangelical churches in in order to have a voice before the government. And do you want to know what they wanted a voice for? I thought this was interesting. Radio programs. In the 1940s, there was actually this move in our nation to start to silence religious broadcasting. And so they felt like, well, we need to keep those radios open. So, and part of that is, is they made enormous investments in gospel radio programs, and they didn't want to lose it. So they decided to get evangelical churches together to advance that political agenda. So when you look at the history of Christian political involvement, there are positives, absolutely, like people freeing others from slavery. There are questionable endeavors where it seems like we've been more concerned with protecting personal investments, protecting our tiny earthly kingdoms, than just sharing the gospel in word and action. 
So I think we've got to be careful. I do. Because I think one arena is blessed by God and the other, I'm just not sure. I, I think about this for a minute. Do we really think God needs things like radio stations to change the world? He'll use it, but I think he can work well beyond that. As we look at Christian history, most of the time, he uses individuals who love their neighbors well. That's how he advances the kingdom. If you look at very early Christian history, you'll find Christians did not engage in war until after Constantine legalizes the faith. Christians start constructing large church buildings, acquiring land and property and all sorts of things, and now they think they have things to defend. So that's when church leaders came up with things like just war theories in order to go and uh, uh, killing for the retention and uh, protection of personal property. They kind of forgot things like Hebrews chapter 10, where it says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. We always have to remember God's kingdom has far more to do with rule and reign than realm. Rule and reign. And I mention this because I think it's important we engage in politics for the right reasons, which includes more than the securing of our own tiny kingdoms and perceived resources. God secures his kingdom. If you hear nothing else, hear that this morning. God secures his kingdom. He does it all by himself. So what does politics have to do with the kingdom of God? When we love others and care for others, we will be inclined to help others who have been wronged. And sometimes this includes pursuing political endeavors for the sake of seeing others set free. This seems to be the most proper use of politics toward the advancement of God's kingdom. Any other use seems to reduce our saltiness and diminish our light. Well, I have wondered if we've sometimes engaged in politics because we like to speed up God's advancing kingdom. God can appear to move slowly sometimes. You caught on to that? God, why are you taking so long? I would imagine there were times when the believers in the first several hundred years wondered why his kingdom was not advancing more quickly. But we must keep in mind, God's kingdom comes into the lives of people in its own way, in its own time. It just does. And for sure, that can sometimes seem very slow. But I would caution us to think we can try to control God's timing with a ballot box. God's kingdom doesn't work that way. We find in a letter that Paul writes in Galatia, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season, in due season, we will reap. That's a promise. We will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith. So let's make sure we sow in the Spirit, in life and politics, trusting God's timing in all things, knowing if we don't give up, living for the King in due season, God's kingdom comes. It comes. We do not need to be anxious. We do not need to be frustrated with the timing of God's coming kingdom because the kingdom of God is established God's way and in God's time. And the kingdom of God is established when God's people seek him and engage in his mission. The kingdom of God is established when God's people seek him and engage in his mission. In our passage this morning, the disciples of Jesus ask if now is the time for God's kingdom to fully come. And then they watch Jesus, they ascend into heaven. It's almost like they're in shock, right? Like, is your kingdom coming now? It's not for you to know the times. Holy Spirit's going to come. You're going to be witnesses. I actually, I was, you know, so I've got an imagination as I read scripture. I'm wondering who asked the question. What would be your guess? Peter, that was my guess too. We don't know. You know, Peter's got a big mouth. It's now the time. I bet those disciples would be like, seriously, Peter? Why would you have to ask that? Like, he's gone now. So they're looking up in heaven. The angels come and they say, they give this affirming word though. Number one, wake up. Hey, he's going to come back. His kingdom's going to be fully established. But here's what I love, the response of the disciples. What do they do? Just continue reading in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John. So they list some of those, all the disciples that were men and women, different generations. And what did they do? All these with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. That's the right answer, folks. When we're unsure about the coming of God's kingdom, we should be in prayer. And it was in this setting the disciples were soon baptized in the Holy Spirit. Peter preaches, 3,000 enter the kingdom, and God's kingdom takes off. We should always be people who return to God 
and prayer, because we're after the advancement of his kingdom, because it was his kingdom that eventually overthrew the Roman Empire. His kingdom did. We'll find later at a house church in Antioch, believers are gathered together in prayer. And here's what we find in Acts chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manion, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, laid their hands and sent them out. Always the posture of the church is one of prayer, which somehow allows us to advance the kingdom in ways we could never do it before. And I love what happens as Paul gets sent out. Here's Acts chapter 17. Now when they had passed through Amphilius and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Paul went in as was his custom in three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. I bet he was explaining, here's how we know Jesus was the Messiah, the fulfillment of all these scriptures. Explaining, proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. It was necessary for Christ to do this, saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and one of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Jason has received them. And they were acting, all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, there is another king, Jesus. We have another king, Jesus. As we follow him through prayer, fasting, these spiritual disciplines, he turns the world upside down. How many think our nation probably needs to be turned upside down right now? What does it take? People who pray. God advances his kingdom through prayerful people who seek him and engage in his mission. So I want you to know right now that our nation's greatest hope will not be found in a political leader or a political party, but in a spiritual awakening to the person of Jesus Christ. And that awakening, let me say, it first needs to happen in a repentant church. I shared a message in 2016 before the last presidential election called Heal Our Land. It might actually be worth you revisiting sometime this week. And in it, I shared God's answer for our nation because I know that's what people are really after right now. How can we fix this? That's why it's emotional. What political party will ensure me and my family's future? What person will make sure the next four years are better than the ones before? And, and the answer I gave then is the answer I'll give now, because I don't think the church responded then, but I'm praying. I'm praying the church responds now. I shared a message from 2 Chronicles 7.14, where scripture says, if my people called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. The problem with our nation is not politicians. The problem with our country is the church, specifically a non-praying church and unrepentant church. The church, much like the Pharisees in the first century, has thought our hope lie in a greater intensification of moral laws, hoping this would speed up the coming of God's kingdom in our nation instead of through the enduring love of suffering saints. Instead of by taking care of those affected by poverty, prison, and sickness. And instead of by loving our neighbors, all of our neighbors. Instead of sharing the gospel in word and action. Instead of being a humble people who seek the face of God and turn from our wicked ways. Second Chronicles 7.14 points out that a praying people who seek God's face turn the course of nations. Can I tell you, always, a praying people, a committed church, who are committed to this, turn the course of nations. Always. So let me be clear this morning. God's formula for advancing his kingdom in America, God's answer is for you and me to pray. It is. And it seems simple, doesn't it? But for some reason, it's like the last thing we do. We seek answers through politics instead of through prayer. If we just elect the right people and act the right laws, then America will be saved, we think. But when you really stop to think about it, that doesn't make sense. Because what plagues America is not a political problem. The issue in America is not a social problem or a moral problem. The problem America is facing, it's not economic. These issues, they're nothing new. Look at our history. The problem our country is facing is a spiritual problem. We're dealing with an issue of faith. We've got too many unbelieving, non-praying Christians in American churches. So what makes us think a political answer will solve a spiritual problem? 
Let me ask a few questions. If we elect someone as president who believes exactly as we believe, and every federal, local, and state official all believe just like us, will that solve the problems in America? Imagine we get all the laws right. Zoning, tax laws, immigration policies, crime bills, exactly the way we know it ought to be. Will that usher in the kingdom of God? Would the hearts of parents really turn toward their children? Would all marriages be the model of faithful love? Would greed and pride be legalized out of existence? Would that solve the problem of sexual immorality and addiction? Would prejudice and racism disappear? Of course not, because no human system has the ability to change the human heart. And Jesus knew it. So if politics isn't the answer, maybe the answer is petitions and protests. Maybe we need to protest every place or every person who's guilty of evil and petition against everything we can think of. Would that solve it? Would that advance God's kingdom in our land? Of course not. No human system has the ability to change the human heart. Reading from Jeremiah 17, this is what the Lord says. Cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans, who rely on human strength and turn their hearts away from the Lord. But blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and confidence. And we try a lot of answers. Angry emails, politics, petitions, protests, intimidation. We try all these things instead of prayer. Now don't get me wrong. I'm not against Christians and political officers. Nothing wrong with that. Christians can and should be involved in city, state, and national leadership, as I've already stated with examples like William Wilberforce. That's a really good thing. We should be involved, but never mistake involvement for God's answer. We have God's answer clearly revealed in Scripture. We just aren't doing it because prayer is hard work. Prayer takes discipline, time, and effort. Prayer is not seen. Typically, if you want to ensure a small crowd, announce we're going to spend a night in prayer. It's like crickets. But we've got to get back to the foundation of the strength and power that's found in prayer. There is strength and power found there that we can't find any other way. And I would say, you know, we do a lot of things well, but to be honest, I think we could do prayer better. Prayer is much more difficult than posting another angry Facebook post. Prayer takes focus and effort. Prayer puts the emphasis on God instead of on us. There's no glory in prayer. Your ego doesn't get fed in prayer. Your beliefs aren't reinforced in the echo chamber of social media. It doesn't work that way. In fact, I would say this. Oftentimes in prayer, our thoughts and mindsets are challenged. Prayer doesn't make you look powerful or important. There's a reason God said to humble yourself before you pray. Because if we get humble, if we don't get humble, and acknowledge we don't have the answers, we'll never really turn to him in prayer. Perhaps the reason we aren't praying is because we're not humble. And yet if we want to see our nation get on the right path, we find we have to humble ourselves, pray, and turn from our evil ways. And this is where it gets really tough, because we can be quick to point out the sins of society but slow to acknowledge evil in the church. There's something wrong with the church when we tolerate greed, gossip, and gluttony and pretend they aren't sin. When we refuse to resolve conflict according to God's instructions or, or give according to God's commands. We see Christian leaders on every level with their sins paraded before a cynical society. To turn from our evil ways means to change direction, to do a 180. It's a course correction, a new pathway. It's the opposite way. If we're going to clean up America, we need to start cleaning up the church. If we really want God to bless our land. So can I say, I want that. But I will say this, I want it because I want us to send more missionaries to reach the earth. What's your motivation for blessing? That makes a difference. And if we really want God to bless our land, we must first get to the place where we acknowledge our own need for a spiritual awakening. We need it. We need to make a turnaround. Basically, we need to show up in society as the church. America needs to know who the church really is, the spotless bride that Jesus died for. I've been wondering for some time now, asking myself this question, where did the church in America go? Where is the church? And I ask this question because you look around our nation, you see a church on almost every intersection you drive by, and yet our nation faces serious spiritual problems today. In June of 2015, a few days after we got back from our time overseas, our, our then eight-year-old Nate, we're driving through Springfield, Missouri, and he comments from the back seat, there's a lot of churches here. Yes, there are. He'd grown up in Sudan and in East Jerusalem. He wasn't used to seeing them. We've got lots of churches, but I'm still wondering, where's the church in America? Because the longer I live in America, the more that question haunts me, the more that question causes my spirit to be provoked within me. And here's why. Because I, I think I could tell you where they're at. Where's the church? They're yelling, getting excited at sporting events and concerts and coming to church building on Sunday, unengaged, unchanged, unexcited about a God worthy of all our praise. 
sleeping in, catching up on homework, going to the lake instead of making church attendance and being together in church a priority. And I would say this, I know we're dealing with COVID right now, but I think a lot of us has now settled into habits and are making excuses to why we don't engage in community. And that needs to change. We've missed the value and need of having godly peer pressure in our lives. We're, we're binging on TV shows instead of spending time in fasting and prayer. We're maintaining the, the same lack of sexual purity as the world we live in instead of trusting God's word, knowing he desires the best for our lives and has set out guidelines to help us avoid unnecessary hurt and pain. We're fighting one another, comfortable living in strained relationships instead of resolving conflict in a manner that pleases God. We pursue the American dream, concerned with the house we live in, the car we drive, clothes on our back instead of making the name of Jesus famous to the ends of the earth. Advance our careers, set up retirement accounts to ensure we never have to live by faith again. But I say, God advance your kingdom in this nation and let it start with us. And you might be okay to think about the church turning from its evil ways. But I want to make that very personal this morning. It starts with you. It starts with me. Because God says, if my people, that's us. So put your name in there. If Zach Maddox, who is called by my name, will humble himself and pray and seek my face, turn from his evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive his sin, and heal the land. Put your name in there. I'm not going to identify your evil ways for you. You know the areas where you are or are not following him, where you're not pleasing him. So what do you need to change? What areas of your life are not pleasing to God? If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways. If we do that, in response to our humility, our worship, our commitment, our prayers, God says, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin. Isn't that wonderful? Our worship, our prayer, our repentance leads to God forgiving us. Let me say this. Repentance is freedom. We've, it's like we've kind of tainted repentance, like it's a shameful thing. Repentance is freedom. It's a starting point for us. And as we humble ourselves before a mighty God, seeking his face in prayer, acknowledging that all power, all authority, all answers are found in him, we're forgiven. And look what happens. We arrive at our goal, what we've been hoping for, what we've been trying to accomplish through human means, what we're hoping to elect someone to do for us. The goal is accomplished by God. Because he secures his kingdom, and that's what we need advanced in our nation. The church turns to him, you turn to him, I turn to him, and he advances his kingdom in our land. That's what we want. Desire isn't the issue. The question is, are we willing to follow God's plan to achieve it? His plan. Or do you want to keep trying to accomplish it our way? Which hasn't really worked. Do you want to see America blessed so much that you're willing to humble yourself and worship and repent and pray? It's a question this morning. I hope so. I think everyone here knows our nation needs it. Everyone in overflowed rooms, we know it. If we humble ourselves, pray, seek him, and turn from evil, God will advance his kingdom in our nation. He'll do it. The writer of Proverbs shares, I'm going to close with this and just encourage you with a couple of scriptures. Proverbs shares, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. On one occasion, the Lord turned the heart of the king of Assyria so that he aided Israel in the construction of the temple. Again, so these are pagan kings. On another occasion, he stirred the heart of Cyrus to release the Jews to return to Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar was considered to be the mightiest king of his generation, but God humbled and put him in detention for seven years. We read in Psalm 22, 28, for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. When we realize that God influences the heart of all rulers, we can then choose to pray for them rather than to fret about them. Rather than wringing our hands, we bend our knees and choose prayer over despair. Jeremiah did this. He was a prophet to Israel during one of her darkest periods of rebellion. He was called the weeping prophet because he was one. He, he wept at the condition of the people and the depravity of their faith. And I would say, this is what we can weep over today. He was so distraught that one of his books is entitled Lamentations. But he considered the work of God, and this is what he wrote, even in Lamentations. But this I call to mind. So this is our hope. No matter where you find yourself this morning, if you're concerned, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We serve a faithful God. So let's imitate Jeremiah. 
Let's lift up our eyes and dare to believe that good things will happen. Dare to believe that God was speaking to us when he said, in everything, God works for the good of those who love him. Let's hope that way this week. When you came in today, you should have picked up a a communion cup. We're going to handle communion a bit differently this morning. Paul in 1 Corinthians, here's what he says. In chapter 11, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. As I was working through uh, the message this week and know that we're going to take communion, here's what I'm going to actually ask you to do. I want you to take that cup home with you this week. As it relates to examining our hearts, I don't think we give it enough space here. So what I want you to do is go stick that on your fridge, go stick it on your kitchen counter, go stick it on your nightstand. Find time this week to truly examine your heart. I'm serious about this. If we really want our nation to look different, then we have to start with us. You need to draw a circle, stand in it, and say, God, start the revival there. That's what we've got to do. I'm dead serious about this. We don't have a whole lot of uh, other things to really put our hope and trust in right now. But we have a God who's faithful, whose mercies never end. Great is his faithfulness. So what I want you to do is take time this week, find a, a time for personal repentance before the Lord, Surely there's something in your life that you realize, man, I've fallen short in this area. If you change, things around you change. That's just the way it works. It really is. So take it home. Take a time of personal repentance and prayer. And here's what I would like to encourage you to do. Either in your life group, if you're in a life group, you guys could take communion together corporately. If you want to come back on Friday night for prayer, then we'll take communion on Friday night together. Because I'd actually like Friday night to be a time of not just personal repentance as we approach, but then a time of corporate repentance. I truly believe God will do his greatest work through the church that's repentant and prayerful. And God will do it. God will do it. We just have to trust him for it, but we still have to approach him humbly, in prayer, seeking his face, turning from all those things that don't please him. So my encouragement is take that home and let it be a reminder for you this week to approach him sometime. Set up the time. Wake up early one morning. Stay up later one evening. Find the time to spend with him and then come back on Friday At 6.30, we'll have prayer. At 7.30, we'll do communion. So if you want to plan around that, then I'd encourage you to do it. And here's where we're going to pray that night as a part of our prayer time. God, would you bring about a great awakening in America and the world? I've shared with you, I believe the world is poised for it because crisis precedes awakenings. So we're right there. So we're going to pray for that. We're going to pray that God's uh, people's hearts would turn back to him, that the American church, God's people, would humble themselves, pray, and turn from their evil ways that we would enjoy the peace that only he can bring, that the ugliness of racism and hate would stop, that he would guide the hearts and minds of our government leaders. And then going off of the scripture Shelley shared this morning, that his church would always be joyful, never stop praying, and thankful in all circumstances. Those are things we want to pray about. So take your communion cup home today. Have it as a reminder, and then bring it back on Friday if you want to take it with us. Maybe your life group will will take that together. I'm going to encourage the music team to come. I'm going to encourage you to stand as I close in prayer this morning. God, I just pray right now that you speak to our hearts. Do it in ways that we maybe didn't anticipate. Do it in ways that we maybe couldn't have imagined before. God, I just pray that you'd help us spend time in these scriptures this week and and approach you humbly in prayer with a repentant heart, knowing, Jesus, that you desire liberation in our lives. You want to set us free, but that has to happen as we say, God, I don't want to be concerned about my tiny earthly kingdoms. I want to be concerned most about your eternal kingdom. And so God, I pray that we would rest securely in your kingdom as the people of God. I pray for anyone here in this room that's that struggled to do that. I pray, Jesus, you give them the strength and steadfastness to do it. God, I pray that you would guide us this week and the weeks and months to come as your church. God, if we want to see a different nation, we need to see a different church. So God, I pray that you help us to be that church pray that you'd help us to be the people you've called us to be. Let us be salt. Let us be light. Let us be salt. Let us be light in our neighborhoods. Let us be salt. Let us be light in our homes. Let us do it in our workplaces, God. And Jesus, we know that in your time and in your way, your kingdom's going to come in our lives, in the lives of those around us, in this nation. 
And so God, we just thank you for your loving kingly rule. And God, we just ask that we would align ourselves with you in all things and in all ways. God, I pray for uh, those this week as they, they look to the polls. Some have voted, some will vote. I pray, Jesus, that you would give them guidance as we take a look at what does politics have to do with the kingdom of God. I just pray, God, that you would give them your wisdom, God-listening hearts, that they would respond to you in the way that, that you desire, Lord. May they have ears to hear what your spirit is saying and then feet that are quick to obey it. God, we trust you. Our hope and faith and trust is in you today. We thank you, God, that you have established your unshakable earthly and eternal kingdom. <clears throat> that you're, It's coming, God, and it's, it's going to come in fullness still. And so, God, we can put our hope and trust there. So, Lord, I just pray as we close in song, as we pray about our soon coming king, I, I pray, Jesus, that we could have hope in you today, our eyes on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat>